When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. Episode 49 of the Bowery Boys. LaGuardia Airport and the Golden Age of New York Aviation. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg. Tom is away this week. While he's away, I'm just going to shake it up here on the show and uh, change the format around a little bit. Today I'll be bringing you a very brief history. Um, you could say a supersonic jet through history of New York City aviation from the birth of flight into the late 40s with a special focus on today's topic, LaGuardia Airport. The air above the city has been filled with aircraft of all manner of shapes and sizes as early as, believe it or not, 1909. So today I'll tell you a little bit about the earliest airfields of the city. So to keep it straight, we'll be talking about six different airports today, just two just casually mentioned, the two biggest actually, Newark Airport, which is of course in New Jersey, and JFK Airport, which we will go in depth a little bit here and then more on a later episode. The four I'm focusing on, well, one was only a five-minute ferry ride from downtown Manhattan. The second one, which was in South Brooklyn, hosted the biggest and most glamorous names in aviation back in the day when merely flying a plane bestowed you with celebrity status. The third airfield that I'll be mentioning is today nothing more than a, basically a grassy field and a row of abandoned hangars and has actually been targeted as a potential cesspool for the West Nile virus. And then, of course, finally, we'll talk about the debut of LaGuardia Airport, the very active airport in Queens that was essentially created because of a temper tantrum and finally brought mainstream commercial flying to the New York area. Believe it or not, it used to be considered one of the biggest and best airports in the world. Almost all New Yorkers have stumbled through its crowded terminal at one time or another. But to get there, of course, we've got to start at the beginning. And if you're talking about the birth of flight, well, I mean, we've obviously got to go all the way back to Orville and Wilbur Wright. LaGuardia Airport is one of three major airports that serves the New York area, the other two, of course, being Newark and JFK. LaGuardia is currently operated by Port Authority under a lease from the city of New York. It's located in North Queens along Flushing Bay with its famous landing strips literally splayed out over the water. 
It's primarily a domestic or North America only airport spread out over 680 acres and 72 gates. And it's actually the least busy of the three airports with only 25.3 million people traveling through it last year. Before we start with LaGuardia, we'll be ending in LaGuardia, actually. We're going to wind our way back to the beginnings of New York Airfare, to the days when mostly the only thing filling the skies were balloons and birds. Now, while I'm talking, just imagine this entire episode being accompanied by old black and white film footage. I've always found the early days of air travel with Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart and all those strange-looking, wind-battered airplanes to be particularly romantic. What's amazing to discover is that the history of New York aviation begins a very short ferry ride from downtown Manhattan on Governor's Island. The year was 1909, and New York City was having a gigantic dual celebration. The 300th year of Henry Hudson sailing into New York Harbor, and the 100th year anniversary of Robert Fulton's navigation of the Hudson River via his newly invented steam engine. By the way, that's 1909, which means next year we'll be celebrating the 400th year of Henry Hudson sailing into the harbor. The Hudson Fulton Celebration, as they called it, was essentially a huge citywide party with fireworks and electricity all over the city, all sorts of unique exhibits going on and taking place at the same time. Capping the celebration was an invitation to Wilbur Wright to demonstrate his new flying machine, which he and his brother Orville had successfully tested in Kitty Hawk just six years prior. It would be the the first airplane New York would ever see in the air, and the first one to ever ride over American waters at all. By this time, though, Wilbur had a rival for the skies, and his name was Glenn Curtis. Curtis had been asked by Alexander Graham Bell, that's the phone guy, obviously, to make prototype airplanes similar to the Wright brothers. He eventually even flew faster than the Wright brothers had ever attempted. This immediately, of course, put him in conflict with the Wrights, and they were involved in patent lawsuits, which many years later, Curtis would lose. But that September 29th, 1909, Curtis was in more immediate contact with Wilbur. He too would be doing an aerial exhibition over New York City skies. It would be a battle of supremacy, and the winner would be the first person to ever fly over New York City. But with Wilbur's brother Orville away in Europe, it might have seemed Curtis would have had the upper hand. However, the weather that morning was particularly awful. Terrible visibility in a day when there was clearly no computerized way to navigate through it. In addition, this small little airstrip on Governor's Island, it was really no more than sand, and Curtis's plane basically had trouble maneuvering from it. So right before takeoff, he withdrew. Wright, however, reportedly turned to Curtis and said, well, I think I'll go for a little spin for a few minutes. Fully aware of the bad weather, but he took off anyway. He launched his right flyer from Governor's Island and encircled the Statue of Liberty. And to rub it in all the more, Wilbur then took off again an hour later, flying back over the statue and passing an ocean liner that was sitting in the harbor, which just happens to be the RMS Lusitania. As for Wilbur, just a few days later, on October 4th, he would fly up and down the Hudson a total of 29 miles over the city of Manhattan, make a U-turn over Grant's tomb, and would once again touch down on Governor's Island. That flight would last 33 minutes and 33 seconds and would be seen by one million startled New Yorkers. Wilbur then landed, then greeted the press, and apparently enjoyed lots of his favorite food, which happened to be pie. Governor's Island, by the way, is open again for the summer, 
and they have a monument out there to Wilbur's flight that you should all run out there and check out. It's in the form of a bronze propeller that was molded from the actual propeller of Wright's plane. He was then the first to christen that airfield, which would be of use on Governor's Island for several years. Soon, however, flight would be less of a novelty, and with the advent of commercial flight coming, a bigger air approach would obviously need to be built in the city. In October of 1928, a very, very different version of what would become Newark Airport was constructed, and several years later, by 1935, they would build America's very first terminal for commercial aircraft there on Newark Airport. New York City, meanwhile, would finally get its first real non-military airport in 1930. Now, there was this small marshy land in Jamaica Bay called Barren Island, self-explanatory description as to what it might have looked like. It's actually the neighborhood of Barren Island today. It was the former location of a rather prosperous glue factory. And just in case you're unclear as to what they made glue from back then, you should know that currently the bay to the west of Barren Island today is pleasantly referred to as Dead Horse Bay. Now in the early 1920s, an enterprising pilot by the name of Paul Rizzo made a small dirt runway on Barren Island, and essentially he took passengers on paid admission rides over the city in Long Island. Meanwhile, the city soon became interested in building an airfield on this location due to the clearance around it, and also because its distinguishing shape from the sky was actually kind of easy to see. So they built an airstrip there by basically destroying Barren Island, or rather filling it with landfill, six million cubic yards of sand to be exact, between Barren and the mainland so that it would be attached, allowing traffic to and from the airfield, and trying to move the U.S. Postal Service, who was using the Newark airport, to move over and use this new field, which they ended up calling Floyd Bennett Field. They spared no expense in its creation, at least for the time, installing such modern inventions as electric lights for night landings, concrete runways, and decidedly homier, friendlier terminals. It was finally opened on May 23rd, 1931. Now, you may be asking who the heck is Floyd Bennett and why does he have a field named after him? Well, Floyd was a famous and dashing pilot of the 1920s and in fact a friendly rival of Charles Lindbergh, best known for flying Richard E. Byrd over the North Pole in 1926. He actually died during an air rescue mission in Canada, but not from an accident, from catching pneumonia and dying of it on April 25th, 1928. The field named after him became the playground of daredevil celebrity pilots and eccentric millionaires. Wally Post flew twice around the world from this location in 1938. Howard Hughes launched and landed onto Floyd Bennett during his global record-setting flight. Strangely, though, the most famous takeoff from Floyd Bennett Field was that of Douglas Corrigan, also known as Wrong Way Corrigan. It seems Corrigan wanted to fly to Ireland, but the Irish didn't want to give him permission to land there. So during a transcontinental flight back to California to Floyd Bennett's field, he supposedly got turned around and ended up in Ireland anyway. You know, accidentally in Ireland. This type of rebellion, by the way, actually passed as entertaining heroism back in 1938, and Old Wrongway was held an instant celebrity. So Floyd Bennett was great for braggadocio, but as a public airport, though, it didn't really last that long. First of all, despite all the fancy amenities, the U.S. Postal Service was never convinced to switch from Newark. It was extremely far away from Manhattan, so most passengers there were never convinced to make the shift either. So by 1941, Floyd Bennett was ceded to the U.S. Navy to serve its fleet of what they called flying boats. 
and Floyd Bennett became a busy strip for military aircraft during World War II. It was decommissioned in 1971, but the strip is still used today by the U.S. Coast Guard. Now, being that Floyd Bennett was so far away from Maine City Center, it really wasn't prepared to deal with increased air traffic that the growth of Manhattan was really generating. So a new airport soon became the pet project for the mayor at the time, a man that would become one of the city's most powerful and influential mayors, I think you can guess his name, Fiorello LaGuardia. So as the legend goes, and this is a crazy story if this is really how it happened, Fiorello was returning from a flight on TWA with a ticket that was clearly labeled New York. Yet his plane landed at Newark Airport at New Jersey. Being the mayor of New York, it kind of must have struck him absurd that he landed in Newark and wanted to go to New York. All the passengers got the plane except him. He demanded that the plane lift off again and take him to New York. In this case, it would have been Floyd Bennett Field. He then turned to some reporters, who I guess were accompanying him, and laid out a case for New York to have a new airport, one the size of Newark that would be convenient for those in the city. Now, LaGuardia usually got what he wanted. For illustration's sake, let's just say his right-hand man was the young Robert Moses. So, back in the city, he eventually made an agreement with a very young American Airlines to find a location for the new airport in the city. Now, by this time, Queens actually had its own airport. It had opened in 1927 under the name Speeds Airport. Pretty great name, Speeds Airport, named after the nickname of the owner, Anthony Speed Hanslick. So you've got wrong way, you've got speed. I mean, everyone had such cool nicknames back then. It was located north of Flushing, Queens, so its name was soon changed to Flushing Airport. And although it was a smaller airport for that time, it became New York's busiest airport. But plans for this new Queens Airport, however, basically put Flushing Airport out of business. By the 1960s, the landing strips at Flushing Airport were being used by Goodyear blimps that then hovered over the World's Fair of 1964. It was completely closed down by 1984 and has since become such an overgrown, dense thicket of weeds, truly an abandoned graveyard of the past, that has actually been identified by the city in very recent years as a hotspot for potential development of the West Nile virus. And they are always spraying poison over there, I think still even today. So that's the fate of Flushing Airport. Now, back with LaGuardia and the owners of American Airlines, they finally settled on a very curious spot in North Queens, about a mile away from Flushing Airport, actually. Now, as you know, listeners, a lot of great landmarks in the city are built over some really curious things. Some former graveyards, old ponds, abandoned colonial homes. Well, the site of the future LaGuardia Airport would be built over something a little bit more unique, an amusement park. The North Beach Bowery Bay Gala Amusement Park was actually at the time called the Coney Island of Queens and featured Ferris wheels and water slides. This was during the 1910s, so gee, that island out in the water across from it, i.e. Rikers Island, had not yet been turned into a major penal colony, thus potentially killing any fun an amusement park with the word gala in its name might have actually provided. Anyway, as it sometimes did, though, Prohibition came along in the 1920s and killed some of the park's apparent fun, and it was soon transformed, believe it or not, into a very small private airstrip. Now, remember Wilbur Wright's rival, Glenn Curtis, the one who didn't fly over New York City? 
Well, this private airstrip is actually named for him in 1929. LaGuardia saw this as an ideal location for his new airport. And on September 9th, 1937, work was started to remake this tiny airstrip into a brand new airport that would dwarf all others around it. Work on the new airport would last two years and eventually cost the city $40 million, with some help from the federal government, this of course being the era of FDR's New Deal program. Part of the airport's support comes from massive amounts of landfill that was actually scooped up from Rikers Island and transferred over to the LaGuardia site and fitted with a metal framework. The new airport would have features that would look like real luxuries compared to prior airfields. For instance, American Airlines would open the first airline lounge, which they would call the Admiral's Club. By the time the airport was opened in October 15, 1939, Fiorella LaGuardia had received commitments from every major airline that existed at the time and was joined by that one organization that had eluded Floyd Bennett Field, the U.S. Postal Service, who basically, in that era, was any airport's biggest client. The Queen's Airport by the Water was opened under the name New York Municipal Airport. But I guess during the dedication ceremonies, I guess there are people really proud of their airports and what they're named. There was actually a woman that was standing there with a sign that said, Newark is still the world's biggest airport, and she was promptly thrown out of the party. On a more positive note, there was also an apparent zealous fan of the mayor who was flying a plane over the dedication with a banner over everybody's head that said simply, name it LaGuardia. And I guess, I mean, after all, it was Fiorello's brainchild. So sure enough, by the time Port Authority took it over in 1949, just 10 years later, it was rechristened for the mayor, LaGuardia Airport. By the way, part of the reason it was taken over by Port Authority is it hadn't really been built with a rock-solid foundation. As a matter of fact, just a few years later, some of the hangars and even the airfield itself began sinking into the landfill. So Port Authority came in, took it over, and did some quite necessary renovations. By 1960, it was literally considered the greatest airport in the world. Also by that time, the primary customer were not bags of mail, but actual passengers, you know, on business and pleasure trips, 4.2 million of them that year, as a matter of fact. Because of that, what had once been the biggest airport had basically now become kind of inadequate and barely able to handle the crush of air traffic that came through. So in 1964, just in time, by the way, for that World's Fair, which is just a few minutes by car, Port Authority once again renovated the place, building a new central terminal building and widening the airfield to accommodate bigger planes, including the biggest of its day, the 747. But even that hasn't been enough in recent years. A little bit of its thunder was stolen, obviously, in 1948 with the opening of Idlewild Airport, which was named after a golf course. Idlewild then, of course, would change its name in 1963, one month after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, thus JFK Airport. LaGuardia itself would get progressively more congested and more crowded, so much so that in 1984, Port Authority actually limited the number of flights through the airport to those going to destinations of no more than 1,500 miles away, so basically no trips to Europe or Africa or Asia. Today, LaGuardia is rather notorious for its congestion and delays. In fact, I just read that the U.S. Department of Transportation has proposed to limit each airline to 20 takeoffs and landings a day for the next 10 years. So it's still madness and still chaos down at LaGuardia. This is a far cry from the days when the air about the city was filled with just one ugly-looking plane circling around the Statue of Liberty. And by the way, I forgot one more detail. 
about Wilbur and his historical flight. Wilbur, since this was the very first flight over a body of water, Wilbur was naturally concerned about what might happen if he crashed. So he latched on a red canoe to the bottom of the plane, which of course he would use in the case of emergency. Now, luckily he never needed to use it, but we can officially say that the very first passenger of the very first airplane in the New York City skies was a red canoe. So that is it for my brief, maybe a little too rushed history into early New York aviation. Thank you very much for listening. Again, the website is BoweryBoysPodcast.com. And I'll update it with stories throughout the week, all sorts of stuff. Thank you very much for listening. By the way, next week is our 50th episode and our one-year anniversary. And me and Tom have something very exciting cooked up, something a little unexpected. But I think you guys will enjoy it. Looking forward to it myself. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. to family vacations there are a million different trips you can take you can get your own trip to texas or if you prefer a vacation from your family you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to texas so go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to texas that matters yours 